she's the Tila Tequila of American poetry for Annie Choi. And they're an excellent poet and terrible pandemic celibate, Dinesh Smith. And you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Yes, Franny Choi is correct. As soon as I got that second shot of Moderna, I said all bets are off. Oh, Annie's no, too. God. <laughs> you're an you're an incel. Like in no world are you staying celibate. No. <laughs> Incapable of celibacy. Incapable yes. of celibacy. <laughs> yeah, that's you. It only works because I have a partner who is just as vaccinated and a hoe as me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true love. Or truly worrisome. <laughs> Yeah, you know, same thing. What is love but not a concern? (laughs) (laughs) Not a health concern for your friends and family. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Don't worry. It's not going to end how you think it's going to end. It will Mm -hmm. end lovely. You know, think about this, right? Franny, are you, are there any endings that actually, like, leave you, like, satisfied? And not just, like, you know, like, TV and film, right? But, like, are there, like, anything that, like, ends or stops, let's say, that you find like a particularly like satisfying way, like good end to a relationship or like good end to like a... Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that a good end to a relationship exists. I believe in the existence of that, you know? But <laughs> Not in your research. <laughs> I haven't seen it personally, but I, you know, I believe in the theory. Um, but recently I was um, looking at the, the the website for an organization that like operates in Atlanta, like a... a kind of like grassroots movement org and um they were talking about how like this is this was their sunset year you know they'd been like in operation for like maybe five or ten years or something and they were like our work has come to a close like as an organization and so we are going to spend this next year shutting down and like closing this chapter of our work um and i think the the idea of a sunset year for your organization or for your program and like making sure to take like that year to do that intentionally. Like, I don't know what it entailed and I have no idea whether that sunset year was like, you know, a really beautiful one or whether it was like a total crash and burn. Like I have, I don't know, but I love the idea of that actually. The concept is beautiful. Yeah, 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 I I think so, yeah. But what about you? What's a good ending? You had such an eloquent and beautiful answer and I'm not to be trash. So (laughs) um, what I literally thought about was in a relationship like, don't need like the last of something right like you know i was thinking about like little things like the last like chicken wing or like piece of chocolate (laughs) like i am so willing to like give that to my partner even though i know that wing tastes really good and that my partner doesn't really (laughs) like wings like that like you know i'm like you know what because it will make you happy you can have it you know and like my boo is the corny person that will like notice that shit but last word Mm -hmm. oh no Nobody's getting the last word over Denez. I don't even have to have a point anymore. <laughs> I can have like been like admittedly proven wrong and I will still find a way to be like, but bitch. <laughs> like in an argument. Okay, you were right, but still tone. <laughs> I didn't like the way you said what you were correct at. <laughs> wow. If you don't get the last word, that, then that's not satisfying for you. So yeah, giving the last wing, satisfying for everyone. But like getting the last word, satisfying only for me. Maybe detrimental to my relationship. Wow. But so sad. <laughs> and maybe that's all that matters, right? But that's also the thing, too, where I'm like, I need to like, I'm starting to recalibrate and be like, okay, like, Denez, will this choice be like pettily satisfying for you as an individual? 
but in horribly for your relationship? Like, you know, is there a way to like have a mutually beneficial satisfaction in terms of your decision? Oh my God. That's amazing. And I now want somebody to go through all of the episodes of Versus and say how many episodes the episode was over and Danez just said like, pop it up. You know, like some, just some little thing at the end to be like, make sure I have the last word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, okay, bye. <laughs> I have to make a sound, you know, I have to be, what you know, whatever the fuck, you know, after everybody's done clapping at the good line at the poetry slam, I still got to go mm-hmm, like loud. You know, I'm just that nigga. Are you a last clapper? No, but you know what I do know? I'm the first one out. I'm like what I decide when we stop clapping. Like, oh. in my head I'm just like I'm like I'm like okay and now we stop y'all and then like it's like three more <laughs> I'm like everybody's waiting on my signal to like begin the ending of the clapping <laughs> I feel like the clap orchestrator I'm a first clapper I'm definitely a first clapper but then like I'm like okay and everybody see and I'm we're ending <laughs> oh my god it's the same energy as like a dad who whenever they go in front of like an automatic sliding door, you know, they like do the wave of their arm and then it's like, haha, I did it M- magically. I'm I opened the doors. <laughs> do you do that, too? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I do do that sometimes. Oh, my God. It brings me such satisfaction. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, no, I'm a dad. You are a dad. And I love it. I love it so much. Um, Well, going back to this idea of like having the last word, I think that sometimes being able to get to that ending, that like very last thing that's possible to say is like really satisfying. And then there's also like that like thrilling sexiness of like just pulling back right before that thing, you know, like just leaving them hanging a little bit. There's, there's like a sort of deliciousness of that. And our guest for today, Rachel McKibbins, um, the poet, the legend, the witch queen mother of us all, um, talked about the kind of like magic that happens in um, writing and delivering a poem that stops just short of actually reaching that satisfying, big climactic ending that we might expect. And what kind of like happens in that empty space between the poet and the audience member um, when you stop a poem rather than ending it. Um, And we talked about so many other things in this interview about writing in the aftermath of endings, in the aftermath of traumatic and tragic events, um, what it means to be in touch with your own wickedness as a writer um, and as a person, Um, and then also sort of like what happens when um, you are a fighter and what happens when you realize that part of your healing necessitates surrendering to the world and to the powers around you. Um, So this is a a really incredibly special conversation um, with one of our our longtime heroes, Rachel McKibbins, who showed us, I know, Dinez and me both, and also like so many of our peers and friends, um, a way to be in this world as poets, as queer poets of color, um, and as people who um, have survived all that that entails. Wow. Franny, I'm going to miss hearing you summarize what we talked about. (laughs) It's truly a pleasure (laughs) to witness it every time. Um, But no, seriously, Rachel McKibbins, um, all 
these bitches, bitches being us, is her sons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all these bitches right here on all, this podcast. All these, all, yeah, all the bitches that host this podcast <laughs> are her sons. Her son, are her sons. <laughs> um, and her daughters. Uh, Rachel McKibbins is a queer Chicana writer and two-time New York Foundation for the Arts Poetry Fellow. She is the author of three full-length books of poetry, Blood, from Copper Canyon, Pink Elephants, and Into the Dark and Emptying Field, a finalist for the Patterson Poetry Prize. For four years, McKibbins taught poetry through the Healing Arts Program at Bellevue Hospital and continues to teach creative writing and lecture across the country as an advocate for mental health awareness and victims of violence and sexual abuse. In 2012, McKibbins founded the Pink Door Writing Retreat, a week-long writing intensive held exclusively for non-men writers of color. McKibbins is a member of Latinas Unidas and hosts the reading series Poetry and Pie Night out of her bar, The Spirit Room, in upstate New York. Y'all, we can't even gush anymore. This is truly, truly a wonderful interview, one that I hope that you sit down and really open up your heart with and leave a little bit more dangerous. And so with no further ado, here is Rachel McKibbins with a poem. One more time with feeling. When I was 19, I stole a gun. The drug dealer next door blitzed out of her skull, didn't see me pull it from her kitchen cupboard. As the California sun sank below the foothills, I haunted the neighborhood, screaming your doomed name. I was ready. A death wish Romeo beneath your bedroom window. Split once a neighbor threatened to call the cops. I never told you this story. Not because I regret what I did, was prepared to do those 45 minutes of havoc hunting down your head. Back then, I wasn't shit. Just electrified violence, all fists, piss, and safety pins, an unwed teenage mother with no address. You had parents, freckles, a three-story house. I listened to you spit your angsty fiction while I slept in parks and ate from garbage cans. When I learned you were coveting the man I loved, I felt my insides darken, cursed your well-fed royalty disguised as grit, got tired of the forgery, wanted all the black-eyed wealth to myself. Bang, you're dead. Wish I could say I've put those days behind me that I never fall into the steel weight daydream of a gun's hard lesson. 1995, half my life ago, still, every time you call to bitch about your latest ex-soulmate or DUI, one more kid taken from you by the state, I want to tell you about the only night you survived. When something said, fall asleep, and you did crashed hard with a starving bitch and pistol at the ready, birds still singing in the half daylight. I'll say it here right now, one more time, with feeling. It was the only moment in this wretched life a god was on my side. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) I remember y'all hearing this poem for the first time. I think it was at a Rust Belt, I think. Yeah. It sure was. And I had to stop and say, like, don't you fucking record yes. this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because what was wild was this was going to be out in print. And I, my friend, who this is about, still follows me on Insta. And I don't know why. I just felt really bashful about her knowing I was going to shoot her in the head. Uh, weird. weird Have you- y'all talked about <laughs> No. 
I has don't she know. Read, we just no? don't talk about it. Which is weird because she had posted that she bought the book uh, on her Instagram. And I was really interested in if she saw herself in that because it's so specific. I write plenty of work where I want more than one person to see themselves in it. But this one was so specific and I name like physical attributes, you know, where she lived. um, And even if she does recognize herself, she knows that that's a former place. The speaker of the poem, which of course is me, um, doesn't reside necessarily still in that spot. But, um, you know, I think as someone whose lineage is absolute violence, it's important for me to name that shit, especially like just as a woman in the world, as a mom, to deny those facets of, of my existence would be an absolute dishonor to who I've become now. Less shooty. <laughs> Um, more step, but more step, maybe. <laughs> Progress. Progress. You know? Growth. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's this poet, uh, Steve. Oh, God, I feel terrible not remembering, but he had a line, I prefer the intimacy of a knife fight, and I've never forgotten it. Forgot his last name, but I've never forgotten that line. Because the Mexican in me is like, yes, I can write poems with a razor blade under my left tit and we're fine. Things are great, (laughs) but that's just how I exist in the world. Um, And I think that people mistake poets for being Mm -hmm. (laughs) nonviolent. Talk about (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a major mistake, I believe, you know, and if we've learned anything within our own community, you know, we are just as capable of harm, if not more inventive harm Hmm. than anyone else. Oh, my God. Worse than a violent nigga is a violent nigga with an imagination, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I think of the stories I would hear from my uncles who were all chronically incarcerated, you know, gang members and drug dealers and the pure imagination of the violence uh, within the prison system, as well as the gang violence that happened. My uncle's best friend messed around with, uh, you know, the Mexican mafia. And when his body was found, it was absolutely what I would consider poetic, what they did to him. I think that that kind of imagery is why so much of that presses itself hard into the framework of my writing. I like to believe that there's a very visceral energy uh, to the images that I allow to inhabit my work. And, you know, I grew up a latchkey kid and cinema was my mother. And I like to have a very cinematic feel to the work. I need folks to feel as if they are a very captive audience or trapped, (laughs) you know, because there's a difference in those two. Yeah. I mean, I remember like hearing you read that poem and just like having that experience of of being, you know, it's so cliche to say at the edge of my seat, but literally like my whole body tense, like trying to catch every word to know where what was going to happen. It's actually like a rare thing, you know, to to be able to make that effect happen. I mean, and it, it goes back, I think, also like to Pink Elephant. Like I remember reading Pink Elephant and being like, like it, it was the first book of poetry where I just felt like I could not look away and like had to keep reading like it was the first time I like read a whole book in one sitting and was like 
I don't know that like a book of poems could do this to me, like give me this, this feeling. Thank you for that. I, I get told more often than not that people have to put it down constantly, which I completely understand. I have never read, with the exception of when I did that really ridiculous like poetry telethon <laughs> to raise money for mortgage oh during lockdown. Right. And I read all, all of my books in a, like that was the first time I had ever allowed for myself to read Pink Elephant front to back. I've never done that. I'd lived it. I wrote it. There was no need to revisit. I don't know how many people sit and read their books. I worked too long on mine. I was sick of it for a long time. But um, I love my poems to stop instead of end. And I think it's it's the level of momentum in that work that allows the reader to kind of come to their own conclusion or, you know, it designs for them this like wicked little journey that they are more interested in and excavating something out of their own selves. Because I think that a lot of people imagine that I grew up and was raised by monsters, but I wasn't. I was raised by incredibly horrifically human people. <laughs> Humans are the most frightening creatures on the planet. And it's important for me to also honor wickedness. You know, as poets, we're so often willing to hold something up and be witness to it. But I like the instability of confessing my own ugly. I like that the rules that I've created for myself are to never be presented as, <laughs> I don't want to say approachable, because sure, I'd like folks to come up to me until I don't. But I <laughs> I don't shy away from appearing dangerous. And I don't want my art to be governed by any binaries whatsoever. You know, I'm not good or evil. And to be categorized as such prevents me access to self-exploration, examination, correction, healing, growth. Like, I'm free enough. You know, I'm 45 now. I am a free bitch. I'm big and free enough to carry the entire spectrum of humanness within me. And, you know, the magic within my craft and the lessons gained from my lived experiences is my choosing not to give in to the chaotic voice of trauma and violence that wants so much to be the driver of my living, but instead just a passenger and never a backseat driver. I do my best to not allow those things to take hold. Ten years ago, that this would be a different conversation. I've been able to acquire a level of control that me as a traumatized person, as someone who has bipolar disorder, CPTSD, um, I need the stillness that healing requires. In the beginning of writing, I wanted to just dive into the chaos and name it all. But as I've learned over the years, it's impossible to write from the eye of the hurricane, right? Like in order to assess the damage, in order to name the aftermath, you have to be far away from it enough to, to survey that isn't in the language of, of, of fear. You just spoke so eloquently about your craft, but also just like a lot about personal growth. And I'm wondering, one, could you explain a little bit further what you mean by poem stopping instead of ending? And then I'm wondering if that was a tool for you to write Pink Elephant, do you still feel like that concept is true for you being a completely different woman? Oh, absolutely. And I have always said that I like to write 
from the aftermath point of view instead of within. And again, it's all swirling around. Nothing comes to an end. Like even when we die, there's just this other energy and it moves to a different, for me anyways, these are my beliefs. And so for a poem to stop, I don't think it's my duty to provide the reader a pat ending. As someone who had a background in slam poetry, who read poems that stopped and didn't end, it made my work very divisive. So I love that I have that background because it always allowed me, when someone was giving you a between a zero and a 10 on the same poem, I love the way it makes, it frustrates people. But I, I'm more interested in, okay, so when you feel uncomfortable with this, the way this poem stopped, where are you taking that? Like, how are you as a human receiving this narrative and how do you allow it to end? How do you want it to? What are you going to do in the fucking world to enable the woman in that poem who spoke to fucking exist and be free as possible and be liberated from patriarchal violence, from abuse, from oppressive entities. Like, that's what I I mean by that. Like, I really don't ever think that there's any story I could ever tell that has an ending because I'm still working shit out. Like, there are things within Pink Elephant, which is now a 10-year-old book. It's going to be re-released August 2022 on Button. You know, that was a different person who wrote those poems, of course. I was a much younger writer. There was a level of fearlessness that I I still have, but I think the book very much shows like someone needing to get it out of their body. And then I feel like for a lot of readers, it jumped from my body and into theirs and like they were being attacked and had to like get away from the shit. Um, And I get that. I just think that to allow my art to provide a platform for my my wickedness, for my um, the ways I have been a harmful human to another the ways that I have survived my father, have survived being orphaned by my mother's schizophrenia, you know, I'm still working that out. So how can you ever say that anything in my life has ever really come to an end? It always just stops. And I just believe in that level of momentum and for the reader to have to pick it up and decide for themselves where to take it. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense because it, it opens a space to ask that for that person who's listening or reading to ask that now what question, which is like a question of responsibility. This was like the thing about Pink Elephant. Like the reason that I said I couldn't look away was that ugliness. I felt like I was like seeing some ugly part of myself reflected back to me in that in a way that was like an enormous relief. <laughs> like, you know, like this like recognition of like, oh, I'm allowed to exist like I'm allowed to be here you know and um yeah it creates a space for that too I appreciate you saying that um there's a poem in there tomboy that is the story of when I stole a mermaid from the beach and trapped her in my closet and uh it was called tomboy because what I wanted to do was sort of capture what it was like to not feel the gender I was assigned at birth, like it just didn't match who I was. And because I was an angry and violent child, I assumed, well, that must make me a boy. I'm going to grow up to be a man one day because, you know, I'm this. And I was always called a tomboy as, as a kid. And I wanted to show that like even a mermaid that's half woman, half fish is more 
you know, like has more femininity than me. And looking back at it now, I, I, I had thought that it had more to do with not understanding or recognizing the gender I'd been assigned. But now I just realized it was actually more about my very first girlfriend, Kim, who I had in junior high, who was the epitome of femininity. I mean, she was sent to the principal's office all of the time for the clothes she wore. Always skin tight, always had holes on the side, like just not appropriate at all for seventh grade, you know? And really what I was trying to do was kill that girlness and that womanness that endangered her. Based on how I grew up, where I grew up, and what I had seen in media, I knew that she was just like this walking siren just saying, kill me, kill me, kill me at any time. And so I chose to kill. What's interesting is that when people started calling her lesbo, I, you know, big fucking rugged Rachel Camacho beat her up because she was lesbian. She was my girlfriend. When you think about all that internalized homophobia and how in order to not ever be accused of the very thing you are, you do try to do everything to erase what's around you that resembles you or that can in some way expose you. A lot of the work in Pink Elephant does that. It's got this level of like exposure. It wants to reveal how we, how so much of our self-hatred comes back and we wound the other. And, you know, I don't want to ever come out as clean in the end of any book. I just want folks to understand that even through mythological creatures, even through like fantastic elements, you know, I am being as honest as I can. I'm not letting the data or the facts or the truth get in the way of me being honest. I mean, but here's the thing, right? We talked about like violent people with imaginations, right? And like, I feel like that. I I, I love to throw hands. I actually want to say like, one of my, <laughs> my one of my favorite conversations to have with old black people is about how people don't fight or stab anymore and about how the neighborhoods would be better if people stopped having guns and just like it's a lost art. It is a lost art. And it's a loss <laughs> because it was right. You can't there's no missing with a fist or with a knife, right? You know, there's no bystander that gets hit. There was like, I I want you to hurt <laughs> and I gotta get close to you to do that. Absolutely. And what's even greater is that you commit this like moment, right? This is me as like, you know, fucking former Chola who would fight people and their parents. Like it was bad. Um, I, I think that it's just so much more respectful, right? Just come up. We have beef. Sock, sock, sock. Boom, boom. And then that's it. It's actually squashed. Yeah, we got that we're shit done. out. We're we done. can actually grow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we can move on now. It's cool. Like there isn't <laughs> this like giant fucking piece of like aggro energy that's waiting to like spit nails at any bystander. It's just beef between us. We're done. Like if I could just slap Tony Hoagland, everything would be great. Like his poems wouldn't hurt me as much. <laughs> I think about that a lot. You know, he did. Wait, did he really die? He did. Yeah, 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 he's dead. yeah he did. He did for real. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought you meant after I hit him, he'd be dead. And I'm like, you're right. And I'm like, can I tell you, are you some saying, shit that wait, embarrasses is, this me is, this about his death? like a wild death? story, actually. <laughs> so Tony Hoagland, Tony Hoagland, before he died, made like a poetry mixtape of like poems that he liked. And it was like 14 white niggas and then me doing dinosaurs in the hood. <laughs> <You're lying. laughs> Of course, of course, of course it was. 
which I find hilarious. <laughs> and it's, isn't it the most telling thing? Like it's, I think, I feel like there were white folks who felt like, oh yeah, I can agree on that poem. All right, there you I go. I literally feel like he was like, I got to put a nigga on here so they don't think I'm racist. Uh, <laughs> what's that one young one? <laughs> Who's that new one? Amazing. <laughs> that new one? Aren't there plenty of poems where I've read and I'm like, this person has never been slapped in the cafeteria. Oh, for sure. <laughs> They've never been approached for talking shit mm-hmm. and then just straight slapped. Plenty of poems, plenty of tweets, plenty like you have never, like you've never been in danger. <laughs> right. It, it, legit, legit. And you're like making, you're having to make it up. So I think that, you know, poetry can be a great equalizer in that way. But at the same time too, like, I think that there is a necessity for, for you standing up for yourself in the real world and like really clocking somebody every once in a while. When we are bad, when we are violent, it's not just simply the opposite of good. It's a response to a hunger of some kind. and it's easy to identify the architects of hunger, like imperialism, religion, capitalism, colonialism, white supremacist delusion, and all of that shit. And for anyone to designate how we're allowed to respond to that hunger, I think is just really fucking foul. I don't believe in it. I think that my writing, I, I've just choose to be as dangerous as I am in real life, which isn't to say I'm like some, I'm not this volatile ticking time bomb where people are like, and I actually stay quiet for a very long time. I survey just like any poet. I gather the data, the information, and I sit there. And it's not until it is just going to actually sour my spirit uh, to keep holding it. That's when I release. So that's the same can be said with poetry as well as when I finally pop off on a on a fool. Which you know this this pandemic has made that. Whew, the the fuse has been shortened, my friends. But I was talking with my partner, Jacob, you know, who's this like Appalachian hillbilly grizzly bear of a man who also writes poetry. And we were talking about the poem Shooter by Jan Beatty um, versus Hoagland's poem, The Change. And we were talking about what the boundaries of wickedness are. And he said this incredible thing. He said, when wickedness is disobedience, it's revolutionary. When wickedness is the indulgence of the powerful, it becomes a tool of oppression. And I was like, holy That's shit. A smart like, man you've got. <laughs> he just always, yeah, and he just sits there and he's very much the surveyor as well. We both are often like the life of the party. We can't wait to leave. <laughs> and, you know, have you ever been really good at something you hated? I, I, I'm a very entertaining individual. I can hold a conversation and not want to be there at all. And so... <laughs> Sometimes I just let the poetry be itself and do the thing. Um, I'm going off on a tangent right now, but someone sent me a manuscript unsolicited recently and asked for, you know, suggestions. And I'm like, I suggest you never send me. Wait, like any straight up, poet. like like cold sin. Like, would you read my book? What are you talking about? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> this is like every three months, Mm-mm. a whole one. And I'm like, what? That's wild. And, you know, within the last like 18 months, y'all, for real, I haven't written shit. Poetry has not come to my mind lately. I've been trying so hard to have my children be okay because within like quarantine, lockdown, pandemic, and everything else, they did not come out (laughs) of it in a way that I had imagined. And so it's really hard for me as, you know, a mother to even think about 
craft or art or any of that shit right now. And ultimately, I need my kids to be okay, first and foremost, because if they aren't, my work, you'll never see it again. Like, that's just the cold truth. And I've had to, like, be mindful of, okay, is this pandemic Rachel talking or is this like an actual person who is considering all of the, you know, weighing all the options and paying close attention to what is needed? It's been a fucking difficult time. And I've had to do a lot of uh, surrender and a lot of quiet time, which I think when you're writing poetry you do, and when you put it out into the world, that is definitely like a, a level of surrender. And uh, the same can be said with, with parenting in this, you know, what I, I'm so tired of the term uncertain, but we are, it's just chaos. Like what's happening right now. Um, and so I have to allow for, for the, the motherhood thing to step up in a way that I'll, I'll be honest, quite frank, I haven't had to worry too much about my kids. So, you know, they're really smart. Um, they have been surrounded by scholars and poets and writers and artists all of their lives. And for them to struggle, that kills a lot of the artists in me. Um, I just don't have fucking time for her. I always tell folks in my classes, I'm like, it's okay if you can't right now, right now, your creativity gets sucked into the rent, gets sucked into all these other areas of their life. Right. And so like, yeah, so you had to surrender to poems right now. You're surrendering to motherhood. And honestly, I don't think you would be the writer you are if you didn't surrender to your life every once in a while, you know? I agree completely. And I go a long time without writing. Like I will write a book in 30 days and then not write again for four years. I wrote a chat book after the the passing of my baby niece. I wrote that in like six hours. You wrote Mammoth um, in six hours? Oh, yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah, because the deadline was six hours away. So I just sat down and wrote it. I got it out of myself and then I was just able to keep moving, which isn't to say that the grieving had stopped. It just had reached a different level of it. And I know that they say there's like specific stages of grief, but really grief is an ongoing thing. We just learn how to adjust our lives to this new silhouette of sorrow that's constantly orbiting our bodies. Can I ask another question about um, surrender? Sorry. Yes. Oh, which is the scariest word for me. Please believe. I mean, totally. I mean, I this is the thing is I think of you necessarily as somebody who surrenders not the first word that comes to mind no. when I think of right? you. Yeah. Because it's synonymous to our in our brains as uh, like loss. Right. And that's not yeah. the truth. Yeah. yeah. So how does this like new relationship with surrender and what you're finding there, does it come up against the like the fighter in you? And how? <laughs> oh, ooh, yes. Oh my goodness, that's a perfect question for anyone I think who knows me and understands. I have been swinging, but isn't that also the most exhausting thing to be? Is like in a constant state of survival, panic, and like fight. It has taken six hundred thousand souls dying. It has taken me having to sit in my household to be very present with my kids in a brand new way and not be able to help them through their mental illness, through like all of the internal struggles that come with being young kids, two young trans kids who haven't really 
been able to socialize their new selves. So they have been trapped in their former selves because really the authenticity does sort of come to light once you can introduce your new self to your people, right? Like that's such an important step in transition is to be able to say like, this is who I am. (sighs) To be able to just, to say, there's nothing more I can do. Like this is where a professional has to come in. This is where I have to just give you time. Um, Because not only did I have two children who were in the midst of transition and also right at seventh and eighth grade, like when all of the social norms sort of start kicking in and when you start like your hormones are just, just fragrant as fuck. Those are some, those are some wild years. Those two years. (laughs) So imagine having to be trapped Mm. in that, to have not been able to go outside to see your peers, all of that, like it couldn't have come at a more vulnerable time for both of them. And so I can't read right now. I don't have, like, I have ADHD. I cannot focus. I have to listen to audiobooks now. And I'm really upset at how many books of poetry are not in audio form, but we'll just get onto that later. And so a friend of mine, Kim, posted, it's 2021 and the word of the year for me is surrender. And I was like, oh, I recoiled from that. And then I sat with it for like two days and I understood, you know, it's really letting go of an expectation and instead allowing what the future holds to just reveal itself in due time. And, you know, like all trauma survivors, all we want is control. You know, all we want is to be able to now as adults maintain some level of normalcy which, I mean, what even is that, right? But I have to understand too that like, I can't change much. And I think so many of us have have come to this conclusion throughout um, the pandemic that really all we can do is just be better people or not, sleep in or not, (laughs) work out or not. But like, I just have to allow myself to not, try to imagine a thing is going to end up the way I need it to. And instead, I'm going to have to just adapt to whatever it is that comes. And it is, again, really hard because poetry has allowed me a voice that I had really suppressed for a very long time. Poetry in the beginning, it felt like I was snitching, which is so against the code of like Chicano culture, you know, specifically gang culture. And it's been a great journey to discover that I can also be a witness to what I have survived. I was actually most present for it. And that um, when I allow the imagination to kick in, just maybe save myself from experiencing things again when I'm writing them. Allowing imagination to maybe take some control is a really exciting thing. And uh, I recommend it for lots of folks to allow the magic of yourself to exist against brutal instances of both like, you know, I don't know, violence as well as even the softer things. Um, I'm allowing now for my brain to not be this racing, panicked, you know, whirl of, oh gosh, what if this happens? What if that happens? And at this point, it's like, if it happens, well, if my machete can't fix it, I don't know, then we'll just have to, I don't know, do something else. (laughs) 
What an amazing, what an amazing sentence. <laughs> Machete first solutions. I fucked with it. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally. But I, I also, you know, I've been around for a while now. And I trust that when it's time for me to write, I'll fucking do it. There's no expiration on like my creativity. I know that I can, I can witness something, hold it in my body. And great. It's even funner to come back around to it when I've, evolved as a human and I can see it and portray it in a new way that maybe I couldn't have in that time. And again, like I've just stopped. I didn't end. (laughs) Bitch, I'm here still. It's such a hard place to get to. I think especially as poets who come from slam and spoken word where like the whole shit is having something to say and getting on the stage to say it like have something to say and then like have a neat way of getting out of it right but i think it's such a hard way to get to what rachel's talking about which is the comfort in like i don't have that much to say right now Hmm. you know um it's such a hard space when like your whole poetry brain has been engined towards every time you come here we're sick of the old thing you had to say so maybe have some new thing that you have to say today and life is long where it's like yeah those couple of years i don't really have shit to say to (laughs) y'all like you know or to myself (laughs) or it was just my business business. it was my business i didn't have nothing to tell you (laughs) (laughs) i was talking to my people for a little bit that (laughs) part and that's exactly actually what it is. I have three like really close confidants that make it to where the poetry is not necessary right now, you know? And if I didn't have them, yeah, I'd probably be writing. But because I'm able to sort of work it out with them and like be in community with like, you know, misfits, witches and bitches who truly have been through it. And I need that because I didn't go to college. I never studied writing or poetry or any of that. And so I'm a very self-taught human being. And I still am trying to teach myself how to be and reconnect with women, with the feminine, um, and not look at them as like potential victim or potential orphaning being, right? Because the mother wound is long. (laughs) It never ends. And so I have to really reconcile with that too, because I've always said I'm a recovering misogynist. And there are days where I'm like, "Mm, nope, don't think that way, bitch. Like, you know better. You know, we have to constantly be in like re-educating ourselves of things. And so I'm very grateful for all of the people I've met through. Like when I think about like Lauren Wheeler, Sonia Renee, like the folks that I've been in community with for like almost two decades now who have taught me how to shape myself into being a good human and writer. Like it all comes from, you know, these amazing people who were unwilling to let me give up on myself and name the end. You know what I mean? Like I truly, they're like, no, 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 there's still more to learn, bitch. You're dumb. Keep going. (laughs) And, you know, I have been so beautifully educated within the poetry community I would not be the mother I am without them. I wouldn't be the poet I am without them. I wouldn't be the fighter I am without them. And so I always want to give them their proper credit as well, too. Because as much as we can harm each other, we can also assist each other into liberation and save each other in ways that uh, we probably never could have imagined. And so isn't that great when you let these other people like broaden your imagination and let them stretch it out and like let you be able to fit more into it? That's what I'm here for. You know, this is something that we were that Denez and I were talking about before. And, um, you know, we were talking about you as a as a community builder with Pink Door, which is like a life saving and life giving space in so many ways. 
and you know you've been talking about the the community that has been holding you down and then we've also we were also kind of asking like you know like anytime somebody says like the poetry community it's always like a, <laughs> huh? like it does not right. exist like is that is that something real and like is it useful at all to think of community in that kind of like realm or among that people because we think of you as somebody who both is building spaces and also like dismantling and like shaking up spaces that call themselves communities so community can itself be a very dangerous <laughs> triggering word um but i think that if we if we, there's a kinship in some way um and we, we we wish to honor that and we wish to do that together and to help others elevate their their stories um and help assist each other in in the telling of them that's important work but i don't think that it's we we can't rely on oh this is a poet then i rely on you nah don't do that we develop our own little you know chosen family units which is you know such thing queers have been doing forever and any people who've been othered uh by society do it but um Really, I mean, I don't even think of myself as a builder. I just think of myself as an instigator. <laughs> and you're aware, Franny, like Pink Door isn't like sitting down and, oh, we're going to do a bunch of poetry and writing. No, it's actually about recess. It's actually about fun. It's about people coming together that have one thing in common, if, if nothing else, as well as, you know, I have now exclusively non-men writers of color, Black writers, uh, to come together and find joy and find themselves to learn how to be still surrounded by crickets chirping and all kinds of wild foxes and a little babbling brook and allowing yourself that kind of comfort and stillness that is never easy to acquire and then get to the writing. The writing is so secondary to just sort of illuminating the kinships that are going to help you survive. And I've loved to see what you take back to your own atmosphere. The community is so weird to say now because it, it can be a community harms. But again, that's a, what is a community, but it's a group of people coming together for some reason. As human beings, there's no such thing as a safe space, of course. Like, that's why I believe in brave spaces and all of these levels of kinship and, you know, these beautiful friendships. I wish I'd had them when I was small, when I was younger. I'd have a lot less credit card debt and baby daddies. <laughs> or maybe uh, higher limits and an extra baby daddy or two. Have better, yeah, I'd have better baby daddies and have some baby mamas too, that's for sure. Um, I'm just really grateful, though, that folks have have trusted me to have this space. And you know as well, I'm running around frantic. I'm doing all kinds of things, but I'm not like this orchestrator. It's up to them to come together and like, sort of build for themselves um, the kind of atmosphere that gets them free enough to be able to finally write in a way that they couldn't if they were coming straight out of their nine to five cubicle, you know? The importance of recess is huge. And it's it's just as important to my kids who on the East Coast since moving here, I couldn't believe how much recess is taken away. Not just because of weather, but the kids are acting up, you don't get recess. The kids are acting up, so they should have recess is what it is. Like, how folks don't get that is ridiculous to me, but adults don't have enough recess as well. Like, the other day I was talking, you know, again with Jacob, and I was like, I just can't believe that I had a job 
where I was told when I could eat. Just that and alone, I'm like, oh my gosh, like it just is wild. And I and I have so much respect for the folks who like can like go do that awful grind office job thing because it's what pays their bills. And then they go create like I couldn't do that. I just don't have a good brain enough for that. I just hope that at the end of all of this mayhem, we can find for ourselves spaces like where we could just be quiet for a while and learn to just be tender with ourselves and each other in new and vibrant ways. Everything we've been doing has been wrong, (laughs) Uh, with the exception of, you know, a few things. I think um, the creativity will come in, in new ways. It will show itself. I'm writing plays again, which that's, I started writing plays and now I'm, I've been writing three consecutive plays uh, or I'm writing three plays at once. And it's, it's, it's fun. I love it. Three plays. At, are they, are they related? No, not at all. You're just writing a festival of plays. <laughs> I am. I'm in the Rochester Fringe Festival this year, September 18th and 25th. Oh, shit. Yeah. And it has drag and it has a sideshow act and it has, an old man playing me in the future. It is going to be fun. It has everything. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Uh, it's, it's because really, I mean, you can't be a person that talks about your mental illness and, and, and in a restrictive format. Like that's impossible. It's got to have, <laughs> it's just got to have everything and maybe not make sense in a few areas. I don't believe that we have to be accessible to everyone. I don't believe in art having to do, do that. I think that it's actually very fucking important to be exclusive sometimes and to have only five homies in the room understand what the fuck you're saying. Yeah. Amen. But that's a whole other conversation. Amen. Um cool. that was great. That was, that was a great I'm day. sorry there was like no theme to this. No, there was. It was there was. I've been writing I've been writing stuff down. Is yeah. there? Yeah. Oh my heavens. Yeah. What is it? Tell me. Nigga, now. you make more sense than you think. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Totally. True. I appreciate you, the and you, you tangent well. Trust me, because we've had some people that tangent bad Ooh. on this show. So yeah. you tangent well. <laughs> you tangent. Well. Just sign language the names of those people <laughs> to me, please. I keyed. I keyed. I keyed. No more of that, y'all. We're done. All right, motherfuckers, let's play some games. Um, that was that was aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> let's play some games, everybody. Um, so, Come on, so, shit eaters. <laughs> Come oh on, God, I almost said some racist shit to myself. I was like, all right, spear chuckers, let's go. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can't stand you. Although I, I love the sound. I love chuckers as a, it's just so good. Like it just, it has a nice sound to it. Chuckers. Like, yeah, white people, I kind of, <laughs> y'all were really on one, but y'all called a spear chuckers that shit's funny <laughs> oh my goodness get me out of here can we if I, we can't escape racism can we <laughs> racism can we still appreciate when it's funny <laughs> yeah yes yeah what else are you supposed to do exactly uh, <laughs> so that was a weird transition for this game where we're gonna play fast punch a game where you're gonna tell us the best or the worst of those categories rachel mckibbins would you like to be a pessimist or optimist today optimist Ooh, love it we love it. Unexpected. Yeah. I know. I, I did that on purpose. That. Great. I'll get us started. Best sandwich. BLT. Mm. Best object in the spirit room. Pelvis. 
the pelvis. pelvis. <laughs> I was like, Elvis? No, pelvis. 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 A pelvis. <laughs> An actual pelvis. Right. Um, best dead woman. <laughs> uh, Emma Goldman. Okay. Great. Which is not true, but. <laughs> Great. Probably Harriet Tubman is actually the best. Yeah, Harriet Tubman is the best dead woman. Yeah, let's just be real. <laughs> um, best movie villain. Oh, shit. Uh, Jack Torrance. What is that from? From The Shining. Oh, from The Shining. The Shining, you oh, young fox. <laughs> I've never seen it. There, I said I it. I haven't either. What? Yeah, you neither, Franny? Yeah, no. He's a deranged writer. That's... He's inhabited by a ghost. What is wrong with him? Is that oh. Here's Johnny? Yes. I, I understand that reference. Thanks to... <laughs> <laughs> because someone nutted in you and said that. Let's be honest. No, because it was a joke from the night. Yeah, actually, yeah, probably. Now, actually, when I, next time I nut in someone, I'm going to say... You do it. That's a horrifying thing to have said to you while it's happening. <laughs> I like traumatized Can you imagine? about it. In I would scramble off into the snow so fast. <laughs> oh, dear. <sighs> Best title of a poem that you wrote finally the author gets personal because it's at the end of a very personal book it's i remember just, i was like, like bitch I, yeah, I remember yeah, getting like, like, being like oh yeah it was such a jo- i thought everyone would laugh and no one i did laughed. <laughs> I, laughed. I was like oh now <laughs> yeah now they're personal um best candle smell uh sandalwood mm-hmm. Best title of a poem written by your husband. Oh, I don't know how to say the word. It's a... Oh, fuck. Well, it's a word... Oh, God, it's a crazy poem about his uh, about his sister. Pika. That's it. Amazing. Um, best uh, cocktail. <sighs> Fuckers. And you know what? An old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. All right, last one for me. Best cake. Cake row cake. Bitch, if you don't remember that, you mean a box intimates cake? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yellow cake with chocolate frosting. Yes, it is. You're right. Inside shout, shout out to the cake row. Cake row. Cake One row. of the best nights at the National Poetry Slam yeah. I ever had. The best cake is snuck in cake. <laughs> To a poetry slam. Yeah, this is NPS, Franny. This is NPS 2000, like 13. It was one of the Boston ones. It was like, yeah. yeah. And me and, and I Rachel. Just pulled was, cake. You know, I just cake. pulled an Intamin's cake out of my purse. We <laughs> just started eating it with no utensils. And I was high. And I was like, think I'm hungry. <laughs> cake and then we were like, during people's poems, we're all, cake row? Like, stupid? During people's yeah. <laughs> We were just, it was our like impromptu team. <laughs> Cake row for no good reason. Oh, God. That was some delicious cake. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. My last one is just best thing that you miss about Pink Door. <sighs> the moonlit cackling over a table of dominoes. Our 10th anniversary was is this year, but it's going to have to be next year. Um, but we have a secret person coming. But it rhymes with... <sighs> Patricia Pith, and (laughs) (laughs) nothing rhymes with Patricia. But uh, yeah, it's like my dream. I like that you just switched the letters in her name. Smatricia Pith. Satricia Pith. (laughs) Stupid. Well, I'm coming. I have a pink door too. Mine's just in the back. So you can. (laughs) (laughs) You're dumb. Pink door is only because my door of my actual house is pink. Has nothing to do with genitalia. 
sounds like pussy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like pussy to me. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) All right. Who's Um, fighting? Okay. Yes. Yes. Now we are going to play this versus that where we make two things fight and you tell us which one will win in a fight. Um, Sometimes we do like concepts and ideas, but for you, we wanted to actually put people in a fight. Taylor Molly with a knife versus Tony Hoagland with a bat. Oh, shit. Here's why I know that the answer is Taylor Molly with a knife. He's still living and he probably like will scamper up a wall like some sort of exorcist uh, fucking like phantom. Right <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He just seems like there's some pent up. Whew, you know that bitch levitates. You know. There's just too many white folks holding him up. So he's just gonna. <laughs> it's funny because like I get along with Taylor actually. He knows that he like pisses me off, but like. I mean, come on. He's his his family like invented like the felt that goes on a pool table. You know it was originally skin. You know it was. <laughs> it's fine to make fun of Taylor Molly because he's rich and he will be eating for the rest of his life because one time he wrote a poem that made teachers happy mm-hmm. and another time he wrote a poem that made white men feel happy about hating women. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What are you talking about? It's it, yeah. And he also took my baby's sterling silver rattle that so he gave my child this battered antique Tiffany's silver rattle. And he, he goes, hey, do you still have that rattle? And I'm like, bitch, of course I do. It's from Tiffany. Like, it's the only thing I'll ever own from Tiffany. And it was still in my child's room. And he needed it for a photo shoot. And he never sent it back. Oh, wow. oh. That's Shicey Taylor Molly. And also, if you have if you have things for Tiffany's for me, then I will say three nice <laughs> things about you on the next episode of Versus. <laughs> we did not. How did we turn this into this? Why are we like this? I love that you say this and this is like maybe our last episode of Versus. Oh, wait, because we have one more. <laughs> we have one more. Ah, damn He's it. never going to hear it before we record it. I mean, literally, but Taylor Molly, regardless, the next time, <laughs> if you give me things from Tiffany's, I'll say nice things about you. I wait until Vogue is interviewing me for some reason and be, and be like, you know what we really should talk about? That nigga Taylor Molly. <laughs> <laughs> He's got enough real estate. We need to keep him out of this combo. Okay, let's do the last one, though. This is our last game for you. Um, It's called This Versus Something Else, where you get to choose between living here or living in this alternate reality that we just discovered. So, would you rather live in this shithole or a world where not every time, but sometimes and randomly, the violence in your poems comes true? There. What? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Do you know how much of that is like actual attempts at spell casting, conjuring and manifesting? Like, are you kidding me? Heck yeah. Really? Randomly is scary. I trust violence more than stillness, which sucks. But that's just where I am in, in, in the world. And I'm trying to train myself to trust stillness, but I'm just not there yet. So as who I am right now, I choose that shit. It's honest. Wait, but what about poems that you're telling where you're telling about things that already have happened? Like, is it the violence of the poems about like events in the past then come back? How does that work? Well, I would say that I I now would know how to better like tame that shit. 
You know, that's shit I've already survived. I'm just a weirdo wow. like that. Sorry. But I was going to say earlier, even like your idea, your thoughts about like poems stopping instead of ending, that's a very witchy concept, right? It's like in terms of the spell, right? You finish the spell and shit happens, you know? Exactly. Like it kind of sort of becomes this, this built up narrative that you are now destined to fulfill or end or whatever. Like it's up to you to come up with how that continues or, or discontinues. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's just how my brain likes to be. I'm a lunatic and I embrace it and lean into it and I eat cake. <laughs> Sometimes intimate cake. <laughs> I'm going to go out and give me a goddamn intimate cake today. That's you better. nothing like some cheap cake with a glass of milk, motherfucker. Ooh. Literally. <laughs> yeah. I put milk on ice because I am. I put a, milk on ice too. And my boy, my you boo do calls not, me weird. What are you talking about? I would drink iced milk on a hot summer day the way bitches drink Budweiser. I am a milk drinker, okay? Like, not, like, I enjoy milk as a beverage. I think milk tastes what good with. What's wrong with I us? think mil- I, I definitely ice it and I will drink milk with cake or pasta. Or pizza. Ooh, Those are my run. three favorite foods to have. I drink milk with spaghetti like you would not believe. This is funny. What? Where are we wow. just learning this about each other? <laughs> I don't know what it oh is, but milk and, milk and pasta sauce be, ooh, it's so good. It's so this good. is funky. I love this. Freddie, so get on it. Yes, I'm, I'm glad I found it. Because people think I'm disgusting. People think, <laughs> they think I'm a monster. If I drink a glass of milk with a slice of pizza, I would be, I would ruin the house. I would ruin what? the environment. Uh, well, yeah, there's that. There's that, sure. But like, for those of us who can tolerate it, it's a glorious thing. I love it. I'm not saying I can tolerate it. Right. I was going to say, I don't think I've, <laughs> I've, I've been. Your boo pays for it later. Yeah. On. Well, you know, Everyone I just, <laughs> you just have to fart so much in front of your boo <laughs> that they think it's funny. <laughs> and we're ending on farts. It's perfect. It's a great bookend. I love you both so much. I'm so grateful for this. Thank, Thank you, you so much, you Rachel. This is, I mean, you mean so much to us when we were baby poets, when we were like now starting to become aging poets. <laughs> um, I have gray hairs in the front. Ah, oh, well, thank you for having me. Um, you both are just tremendously generous listeners as well as writers. And uh, I hope to drink milk with most half of you soon. I can't wait for it. I mean, like seriously, like Fred would say, like, I just love you. And like, I don't know. I can't think of a better person to like help us like cap off these five years. Yeah. What a tremendous five years. So yeah, I'm here to be all the trouble you need to bring it to that kind of ending. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> right. I love that we were like, okay, and let's close out with some wicked chaos. <laughs> wicked good chaos. <laughs> let's blow the shit up. <laughs> all right, Rachel, would you read us um one more poem? Of course. I'm gonna actually read from uh Mammoth because I don't I don't always So this is, yeah, this is the close to a book that is just about um, my 23-month-old niece, Ingrid. Salve. You want only to become magnificent in the naming of terrible things. You want suddenly to have children or want the children you have to stay in the yard where you can see them. You want the man in the elevator to turn and look at you to pin you against the illuminated numbers, to unhinge his jaw and devour you. These are the things you need to survive, to fake normal, 
Suddenly you want to live how you want to live. And I don't mean to get personal, but I have to ask, how alive are you right now? How many poisoned years have you consumed? How many fires have you conquered to defend what you do? What haven't you done? What are you doing? If you're hearing this, it's not too late. The child is buried in the ground. Her bones are winning, but your flesh is still yours. And what better power do you have than that? None. None. This is it. Go ahead. Eat everything while you still have teeth to do it. Rachel McKibbins, what a menace. (laughs) What an incredible, beautiful menace. Wow. A menace for the people. A menace for the people. A menace for the people. Jesus, that's really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. I really bow to like Rachel's embrace of like wickedness and like feralness as part of the human experience, especially that feral shit, right? I think it like, it takes a lot to be like, like so comfortable and like your feral like bitch self right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you ever have a time for any where you feel like your most feral self like you're like oh right i am an animal yeah (laughs) oh i mean this is something that i actually kind of relate to literally watching rachel as a mother and as like a mother of community spaces but like it's truly if any of my friends or loved ones are threatened like at all I just watch my brain evaporate and it's just all like lizard brain. And yet I can't fight. So like, I don't know where all the energy is going to go to someday. It's just going to go to me getting hurt. But like as small as like if somebody leaves the H off of Fatih's name in an email, I just feel like my blood starts to, (laughs) you know, like I just like I just like turn green. Ooh, like the other day, a man on the street bumped into Cameron as he walked by and I was like I'm about to go to jail right now I'm going to murder (laughs) this man and Cameron always had to like just like talk me down so um yeah that and losing at games meant for children that's the other time when I feel like I my brain lose leave my body and I just become an animal. I have seen you lose a game and it's just like Freddie's plotting revenge right now. Oh I'm gonna walk to the corner store. <laughs> oh my god. Like I, I was telling somebody recently that like there were a few times soon after I moved here with Cameron that like we played bananagrams. And like afterward, I had to literally like go out onto the fire escape and like smoke a cigarette (laughs) because I was so upset, (laughs) like so angry and like crying. I had to like, like do breathing exercises and presencing exercises to like calm myself down and like pump nicotine into my body because I was like so, so um, activated. So those are the two things, like defending (laughs) the honor of my friends and losing at banana (laughs) grips. my most animal self i love it that makes sense for you too (laughs) (laughs) what about you when do you get feral i think mine are both in like homosexual like queer situations 
one very similar to to like you like when i'm like out with like friends and stuff like that i'm both like barking and biting at people who are like near my friends mm-hmm. and be like what the fuck do you want you don't need to flirt with him he's too drunk you don't need to talk to her she doesn't want to talk to you <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. and all this other type of shit and i'm like ready to fight but also i'm approaching like you ever seen just like a dog or like a animal of some sort like just like bite the neck of like their young child to like pull them somewhere i'm also uh-huh. that with my friends you know? i'm also like <laughs> biting at them be like what the fuck are you doing over there you drunk bitch come over here sit down drink that fucking water like, <laughs> and i'm just mad that i have to mother at that point <laughs> but i'm also like i love you do you want chicken wings i'm gonna get you some chicken fingers you little bitch Somebody's drunk. Uh, <laughs> don't talk to any of these men uh, <laughs> uh Ugh, definitely as a general rule don't talk to any of these men yeah, exactly. But then also, like, then I become feral when I'm also, like, in, like, a bathhouse or something like that. And surely what I'm describing is pre-2020. Uh, but, you know, when it's just, like, a space to just be, like, a little, like, sex rodent, you know? And it's just, like, fuck this, lick this, suck that, fist that, have all the fun. And I'm just, like, me want meat and me am meat. And, you know, and it's just... <laughs> 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 me want meat and me am meat. Me am meat. <laughs> <laughs> me cannibal. <laughs> me existential crisis. <laughs> Who am me? <laughs> Who am meat? <laughs> but it's true. I'm like, you know, I just like have no brain. I'm just like, if I try to think a thought, it's too hard. It's just like, just give me some hole, bro. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's why... Like, why go to the bathhouse if not to just, like, be feral and be right. an animal for a little and, bit? And, like, is it really unabashed sex if one of you isn't, like, growling or, like, oinking without intention? Ooh. Oinking? Girl, have you oinked? <laughs> have you done that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, I think it's, like, a snarl. And, like, depending on how congested I am, it can turn into an <laughs> oink. <laughs> I love that. Is that is it great sex or is it allergies? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's great sex. Maybe it's allergies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh man. Well, I think that is a great note on which to say that remarkably, this is our last interview episode of Versus for me and Denez, which is like very wild to say after these five fucking years of doing the show and yeah so i don't know we'll have one more episode um which will feature a small but special surprise and in that episode we'll also be going back and looking at some of our favorite moments from verses and playing some games um and so we hope that you will tune in for that but yeah this is the last interview with a poet and it's been like quite a ride so thank you all for being with us on it yeah, we never thought five years ago that we would get to have as many and as splendid of the conversations that we've got to have um, with, you know, probably, what, over over 100 poets? Over 80? I, I think about. About 100. Yeah. About 100 poets. Yeah. Um, and it's truly just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we hope that you have enjoyed these last five years with us, and we hope that you will continue to support the show as we hand it off into the capable hands of the new host. Um, it will definitely be their own thing, but they will be continuing on in our spirit. And so we hope you all, along with us, will cheer them along. And remember, you know, like... They 
they have to find their sea legs too. We didn't really start being good podcast hosts until like two, three years in. So I'd say like three episodes ago. Until like yeah, until <laughs> this episode maybe. Yeah. And so <laughs> who actually knows if we were ever good hosts? Um, but we hope that you all will encourage them, support them, pray for them as they continue this versus dream. Because truly, like I said, we have only just touched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to contemporary poetics and um, we look forward to another five and another five and another five years of folks being able to bring you conversations sitting down at the table with some of your your favorite poets and bringing y'all a good conversation that hopefully you feel a little bit more at home in from the bottom of my heart thank y'all for being here with us yeah thank you all truly truly thank you we i can't wait to see how this grows you know um mm-hmm. But I can't wait to not have to host it. Oh, my God. I just get to listen. I know. What? We get to listen. It's going to be really cool. <laughs> um, but yeah. So why don't we thank some people and um, get on out of here? So I recently found out that a student of mine had passed away from last semester. So I'm just going to take this time to just dedicate this episode to Alden Powers. Thank you, Alden. And thank you to all of my students in that class for making a really beautiful space within a hard time. Um, And that I hope that you all hold each other and um, continue writing and remembering. So yeah, this I just personally dedicate this episode to the memory of Alden. Yeah, I don't think we need to I need to say anything beyond that. I would just I'll just say uh, prayers to Alden's friends and family um, in your time of mourning and healing. Um, you know, to the spirit of Alden, wherever you may be, shine on. We hope you are at peace. Um, and just a special prayer, um, not even a thank you going out there to all the students who are returning either back into the digital classroom or who are in a, you know, maybe not so secure in-person situation um, to all the teachers and educators and staff out there who are in these schools. We pray for you. Um, We hope that you are doing well, both physically and spiritually. My heart goes out to the world, to Alden's family as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Nazi. Okay. Well, we also want to thank... As usual, our producer, Daniel Kisslinger, who's been like the champ of champs over these last five years and the best collaborator in the world. Um, we want to thank Idalmi Noriega and Itzel Blancas at the Poetry Foundation, um, always and forever. Uh, thank you to Post Loudness. Thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to us here in our very final season of Verses with Franny and Dinez. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at BS the Podcast. That'd be a great place if you want to stay up to date on what's happening with the new host of Verses and when the show will be coming back in the new year. Or, you know, just subscribe and that thing will just slide on into, <laughs> on into, your, on into your queue whenever it gets here. Um, but we seriously thank y'all so much uh, for listening to the podcast. Run out and buy all of Rachel McKibben's books. You will be better for them. And thank y'all. Be well. Be well. I have the last word. Goodbye. Word. And I also say word. That was Franny. Okay, but now it's me at the end. End episode. It's over. Okay. All right. Denez Smith. It's me. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Pretty short. Bye. A little comedy sketch. A little comedy sketch for the people. A little sketcheroo. <laughs>